Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Doors of Portland. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving West Portland out to Hillsboro, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. On this podcast, we're honored to welcome Martin Medeiros. He is a local speaker, author, and attorney who specializes in negotiation and persuasion. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, and specifically how Republicans and Democrats talk to each other and how we can try to find a bit more of a common ground rather than just speaking past each other, like I think happens far too often. So Martin, welcome. Thank you, uh, James. Uh, it's great to be here, and I'm honored to be here. I'm, uh, you know, thank you for your service. Thanks for being involved in the dialogue here. I think your message is important, and I'm glad you uh, asked me out today. Well, thank you. I like to ask people out. That's the most flattering <laughs> guest introduction. Like normally, they take a second to talk about themselves. Like, oh yeah, you know, I'm running for this, or I wrote this book, or whatever. And I, you just took the time to compliment us. That's so kind. Yeah. No, Nick, and and I appreciate all you do for keeping the dialogue going in in the state because ideas are important, and I I like what I do and bring people together and and disputes and all that and uh, finding common ground. And I think that's what you guys have done. In this podcast, you look at your logo, it's all about getting people to talk, and I think that's important. That's hey, we're cool. doing what we do. I, my contribution is mostly just witty remarks and trying to be funny. But He's the funny one, yeah. <laughs> so James is the straight James man. James advances, <laughs> the, comic yeah, relief. He advances <laughs> the dialogue in Oregon. I just sit here and make jokes. All right. So I mentioned before that I was going to start with an anecdote, and so this happened yesterday as of recording. By the time this is posted, it'll have been a week, but... Yesterday, or actually two days ago, I officially announced that I'm running for uh, HG36 state representative. So congratulations to me. Thank you. New year. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, anyway, yesterday I, I did the announcement on a local Republican Facebook group, and the topic of vaccines came up. and mm-hmm. Immediately. Immediately. <laughs> so uh, regular listeners will know that we've tucked on, we've touched on this a few times, and so this is kind of what happened. Was the first question was, where do you stand on vaccines? The second, so then what I did is respond with just linking the, uh, the podcast that we Shameless had. Shameless plug. I love it. It then went on to 450 comments of people going back and forth telling me how wrong I was on my stance on vaccines. Well, to be fair, not everybody was telling. There were some That's people who true. were just like, look, I disagree with him, but he's a Republican running in downtown Portland. It's maybe not just judge on this one single issue. Right. But the point I was trying to make is the persuasion was not there. And I think that, and this is um, what occurred to me as I was going through these these comments, was their goal was to change my mind because they are very strongly, they have very strong feelings about vaccines and what they should and shouldn't be. However, me as a candidate, my concern is getting elected. So they never, through that entire course of, of conversation, never tied that stance to electability. And that this, so the entire thing that was running through my mind as I'm reading all these comments, I said, A, you're not in my district. B, you're not 
donors and see you're not big enough names that I'm going to put you on my campaign statement. So what, what am I possibly gaining by, by interacting with you and potentially changing my mind? Because they didn't look at what my goals were in their, um, in their pitch, I guess. Right. I, I think that's a great opener because what, I mean, one of my bylines is, negotiate like a boss by being yourself well how do you do that well it's like playing a board game you roll the dice you move the token you first of all you have to determine what game you're in and if you're trying to persuade someone or uh, change someone's mind on social media uh, probably a low probability of doing that <laughs> uh, th- there's, a, there's a number of reasons why it, and there's it is scientifically based there's some uh, one that we think about extremism now and, you know, we, we just don't understand me and why that happens. And there's been a lot of stories on, uh, and studies done. And uh, there was a, actually a story on NPR the other day on this where in the 1970s, people empathized more with people who didn't agree with them. <laughs> and they did the same methodology, same study like a year ago, a couple of years ago. And they found that today, People empathize, you know, a very low uh, percentage of people who don't agree with them, but they empathize much more with people who kind of agree with them. And what I think we see in the dialogue here on this, these extreme positions is there's a number of, of operating factors. One is that I think people like to agree with people in their tribe, even if people are a little bit further than they are politically and maybe a little bit further because they don't want to disenfranchise them. They want to be in the same tribe. So even if you're on this extreme edge, uh, you will accept that person and empathize more with them than you did in, in this study, the 1970s, where you would pe- say, are you serious about that? But now people who are kind of more or less on our side of things, we, we uh, agree with them more, and I don't know what this phenomenon is caused by, and we're not sure these studies uh, tell us what it is. I think part of it is because we can get in our own echo chamber, right? Hmm. Social media, I can go to the Reddit, uh, you know, subreddits that totally enforce my bias. Uh, therefore, I really don't have the liberty or my neurons aren't considering other sides of an argument and uh the bad thing about going to law school is they they change your brain fundamentally because you're <laughs> trained to 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 see two sides of every argument you heard it here folks the uh lawyers are not the same as the rest of us <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so yeah they they, re- they do rewire your brain uh so uh, you, you tend to look at two things but but what I see now, and maybe on the vax um, thing, anti-vaxxer thing, because I've I've gotten into arguments over this issue with, unfortunately, some of my uh, wife's colleagues who are no longer <laughs> friends. <laughs> um, it's a quick way to lose friends. Is, uh, yeah. Start talking about vaccines. So, yeah. Oh, so, and I think the issue is people aren't really they don't have anxiety over what you're saying in front of them. They're afraid about the next argument, maybe. So I'm not looking about, and it's funny, you know, the anti-vax question is great because both extremes uh, almost have their, their position, you Mm -hmm. know, on the Republican side, it's, 
Total freedom to do yeah, what you want. Total freedom, that libertarian thing, state intervention, you're compelling me to do, the state's compelling me. And on the liberal side, it's, hey, uh, this is my civil right on how I want to conduct my life. And if I choose to raise my child without modern medicine, which I'm, uh, I may or may not be, um, aligned with, uh, then that's something that's, I'm not going to go along with. So, and I may not be voicing that, but I find people on both sides of the spectrum on this anti-vax, the, the anti-vax on the left, you know, you have, uh, you know, Jim Carrey and some other high, mm-hmm. high profile people. Hollywood left. Yeah. Yeah. Who are very anti-vax. And then you find again, people on the libertarian end, uh, where big government imposing, right? I mean, so, you, so it, it's kind of an interesting thing because they're very, far apart politically but they're on the same issue they've come around the the political you know circular i mean i have this theory that all politics is basically a circle it's not linear (laughs) (laughs) i would definitely say yeah there are some exceptions to that i've heard that argument before more of like a horseshoe where the extremes tend to be yeah but it's it's, i think it's yeah. yeah um and i think that that theory is more like the authoritarian like you can get it's not so much left right ideologically it's more of authoritarian versus Libertarian is that the opposite of authoritarian? And authoritarian. <laughs> this is a politics podcast, people, not a vocabulary podcast. Anyway, whatever the opposite of authoritarian is. So I feel like the the extreme right and the extreme left both have a very narrow view of the way they want the world to work, and they are willing to push that agenda on people, regardless. Right. And so they want the government then coming in and basically enforcing whatever their view of the world is. You're absolutely right, and and. Again, I'm, my background is in kind of math and finance and I'm a very data guy and I'm always looking at statistics and bell curves and game theory and all this. And, and you look at those extremes and you have to think about beyond the utilitarian argument, right? What does the most, most benefit for the most people? Uh, of course, you know, we talk about herd, you know, 93% of people need to be vaccine, uh, vaccinated for it to work, but, and again, I'm not a doctor. Sure. So nothing I say should be interpreted as legal <laughs> or medical advice. Uh, we forgot that, <laughs> that caveat at the beginning. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but I think it's more about how people feel because how people feel emotionally drives their data decisions. Because years ago, I, you know, I've been teaching and I speak and I write on, uh, persuasion, influence and, uh, negotiation. And what you find is that Data is one thing, but data doesn't move people. You have to capture them emotionally first, and then you can say, oh, logically this makes sense. But there is, uh, anti-vax is basically fear-based rationale. Mm -hmm. There are incidents where people have bad reactions. A certain percentage of people with any medical procedure since the beginning of time will have a bad reaction and may even die from it uh allergic reactions uh you know there's a a case i think it happened at a people were getting a flu vaccine and the person administered you know insulin and Hmm. which is well it's malpractice or i don't know what the case is but that's something wrong so that's that stokes the fear right even though you're probably uh the, the if you look at the pure data the is a higher percentage of actually being struck by lightning but that's not that's not the argument. The argument right. is an emotional argument. You you have to get people's attention by an emotional argument uh, on why it's important 
and why it doesn't because you know we don't vaccine uh, vaccinate people for the strongest and best in society it's for the most vulnerable in society right uh, it's to protect them it's not to protect those who have all this agency and freedom it's for those who can't make the decisions who have compromised immune systems that's where vaccination works the best mm-hmm. so yeah, there's a saying data tells stories sell and so yeah. they use this a lot in the politi- like especially in the presidential debates where they'll say, oh, I met somebody who did X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, you know, that one anecdote, maybe that sounds good and it maybe it, it tugs at your heartstrings a little bit. That's the point. Whereas they don't go to the facts. They go to the story, the one anecdote, yeah. the I met somebody in Iowa who had this problem. So the, the trouble with that is you can have an anecdote that does not represent the statistics. So you can find an anecdote for anything. And, I didn't really want this podcast to be about vaccines, but um, <laughs> you <laughs> can a great it start. <laughs> I know. Oh, they're gonna they're gonna kill me as soon as they listen to this. Um, but they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> our, our listenership went up quite a bit yesterday when, uh, when I started yeah. talking about this. Stuff. Really, well, that's because you're tapping into an emotion, right? I, people, yeah. people have yeah. extreme, like the old news, you know, headline. If it leads, it bleeds. People want to see. Mm. People are like, oh, all I see in the headlines is violence and awful. What about all the good stuff? I mean, I say that all the time. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's simply because that's what sells ads and clicks and, you know, newspapers yeah. are dramatic things that touch people emotionally. Fear, uh, greed, you know, Purient yeah. interests. So, well, so that's, I mean, that's my soapbox theory on how we got President Trump in the first place is it started out and there were all these normal traditional Republicans, John Kasich, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, however conservative you want to go or Carly sure. Fiorina, business person, whatever. But, and then there's, you know, there's this Donald Trump guy and and he's like, he's making these extreme statements and he's making fun of John McCain for getting captured. And right. everybody was just, <laughs> oh my God, he's just going to tank and tank and tank. But somebody ran the numbers and CNN, if you took the amount of coverage he got just on CNN and counted it, counted the dollars that a commercial running that length of time would have cost, CNN gave Donald Trump a $2 billion in-kind contribution in the amount of coverage that he got. And the next Mm -hmm. closest candidate was Jeb Bush at like... 600 million or 800 million or something like that. Like less than the next huh. contender was yep. less than half of the airtime of Donald Trump. And it's, it normalized it to an extent, but everybody had an opinion. Everybody, if you're a MAGA person on the right, he's fighting for me and he's, you know, not politically correct and whatever. And if you're on the left, just, I can't believe this. He's this thrice married adulterer who says these horrible things and swears and is completely unfit. But either way, they kept watching. Yeah. Like, it, talking about him. Yeah. And I, Again, social media, uh, when he was running, I, I know an activist in California, uh, very, you know, on the, the left side of things and very anti-Trump. I said, um, every time you print his name in your feed, that's actually better for SEO mm-hmm. for his campaign. So I was wondering why, cause this person actually is a social media consultant. Huh. Um, but again, she emotionally, be. she said, someone has got to stand up to this misogynist and all these other things that people associate with him. And at the end of the day, he got elected. And I think it's because of exactly what you said, Nick, uh, people 
you know, it's, it's made for, made for TV movie. I mean, his presidency is the reality TV presidency because <laughs> it's, it doesn't matter if it's negative or positive. Is it above the fold? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's uh, Trump, you can't, yeah. like, even Google News, they're, the first four articles are on Trump. I mean, there's seven billion people on the planet. <laughs> and the first four uh, things on Google day News. Day. Is, yeah. You know, I, it's, so I'm kind of interested, but it's, it's about that again, that, emotional thing it's not the fact that he behaves this way it's like do i want to look mm-hmm. do i want to look you know if it's a train wreck or if it's any you know a, a moonshot do i want to look mm-hmm. yeah so kind of back to the circling back to what we were going to talk about this <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, republicans and democrats so what what do you think is a way that we can so Again, running for state representative here in HD 36, where basically the ratio of Democrats to Republicans is five to one. So in order to win this seat, I need to win Democrat votes. So this is kind of a selfish episode where I'm trying to get input, but <laughs> free campaign consulting. Hey, yeah, yeah, guys like, of a I know, right? <laughs> um, so I mean, how, do, how do we as Republicans get over the fact that we are Republicans and actually meet Democrats at their at their level and actually speak to them in a way that they listen to us rather than just talk past each other. I, you know, I think again, what people look at is the most extreme and they generally don't look for local politics. They will find the most extreme positions nationwide to judge uh, any Republican in this state because it's a blue state. Mm-hmm. And what I think is, it's misleading is because what I, it's what I call Northern Republicans. So a Northern Republican is basically a moderate. They tend to be, you know, socially liberal. They tend to be fiscally conservative for the most part. And there's a lot of exceptions, you know, in different, depending on how the demographics, but you know, I, I come from New England and you had people in New England, uh, Republicans voted perennially and occasionally to public office. And I looked at what they were doing. And basically, it's being a moderate, it's being socially liberal and uh, fiscally conservative because, and in this state, with uh, you know focusing on local issues where you can make an impact, I think is something. And yeah, you know, I think there was a poll about in in Washington County, which is now primarily a, a blue county, Washington County, Oregon. And what do people care about? It's not the the hot button issues that you see again above the fold, they care about roads, mm-hmm. congestion, schools, homelessness. You know, these are things that impact us all. And, and you look at the, the dialogue on those, you know, the roads and congestion are bad. Uh, there's a lot of dialogue and a lot of, you know, traffic engineer articles I'm reading about, well, how did this happen? Does it happen to all things? Is it population increase? And there are some objective data you can have, but that's not, that's not going to change anyone's mind. What will change people's mind is, hey, can you get to that basketball game in time? How do you do mm-hmm. that? Right. And it doesn't help that Portland's war on cars is ramping up. Um, they keep cutting out lanes of traffic for this is so we live. I live on West Burnside here. And I don't know if I mentioned on the pod before, but Chloe Udaly's latest plan for the bus only lanes has West Burnside cutting down a lane mm-hmm. on each side going to, to bus only. Like, I don't know if anybody listening to this has driven on West Burnside at rush hour, but it is a mess. And that's with two lanes going each direction. I cannot imagine yep. the traffic congestion that will happen if we try to put a bus lane in. 
I, I have unreal. I have so many stories about this. So, uh, I helped, uh, I volunteered on the, uh, Portland budget committee for, you know, in the Potter and Addison administrations, you know, got to know all about streets and traffic and the engineers and actually a good buddy of mine who is, uh, in Finland. He was a, uh, he's a software programmer and he actually wrote the code on ramp meters for, uh, Minnesota and how it was one of the first jurisdictions to look at metering and traffic patterns. And yeah, I'll be driving the car with him. Uh, I was on I-5 uh, a few years ago with him and he said, oh yeah, there's a car in the breakdown lane, two miles ahead, left lane. And he would be right because it's all he studied. So there's, hmm. there's predictable things and patterns. And I, you know, driving with him around here locally, he's like, why? Why did the engineer do that? <laughs> and, uh, and the thing is, there's, there's a, there's a, a thing about, yes, uh, as, or, you know, as Oregonians, the majority, climate change is an issue. How do you do that? Well, less carbon. Well, that's fine, but how much carbon do you blow waiting in traffic? A so lot. objectively, uh, the amount of, you know, being parked in a, a traffic jam is not good for the environment. And you have to look at objectively, you know, what is the net carbon footprint of this activity? And maybe traffic is one of the, the ways we contribute to to global warming. So this is one of the points that I've made a couple of times, maybe not on the podcast, but elsewhere. Yeah, we're sitting idling in traffic. So what they're trying to do, and I get the I get the kind of the grand plan here, is they're using congestion as a tool to push people onto public transit. They think if they make congestion bad enough, because you look at any most people they say i need to go across town and they say okay i can drive there it's going to take 20 minutes or i can take the bus it's going to take two hours well i'm you know have a car and it's only going to cost me a couple bucks in gas i'm just going to drive so what they are assuming is that as they increased congestion on purpose this is not incidental this is this Mm -hmm. is on this is by design if we increase congestion now that 20 minutes becomes 40 minutes between becomes 60 minutes. And now I'm looking at 60 minute drive versus two hour bus. And the bus is a little bit cheaper because three bucks versus however much in gas or whatever. Plus I get to play on my phone instead of driving. And so they're hoping that'll push people onto public transit, which is quote cleaner and whatever. What they're completely ignoring willfully or otherwise is that autonomous vehicles are less than 10 years away. Between five and 10 years from now, we will have autonomous vehicles driving all over the city. You know, I spent four and a half years at Intel, and that's one of the biggest things that they were working on is this technology. And once that happens, you are going to have incredibly more vehicles on the road because all of a sudden, imagine Uber, Lyft, those type of services, except now you don't have to pay for the driver. So how much is it going to cost to get across the city? Now your ta- now your your calculation in your head goes from three bucks on the bus taking two hours, or I can take an Uber or a Tesla or whoever the company is. It's also going to cost three bucks, and it's going to take considerably less time. So people are going to be pushed off of public transit onto these other private services, and the congestion is going to be awful, and you're going to have empty bus lanes because our leadership is not looking ahead five years to see what yeah. the next technology is that is going to totally revolutionize the way that we get from point A to point B. Yeah. I mean, James, you're so right. And there, there's a lot more to that. So this is a study. I don't know. It must be five or seven years old. But the issue was uh, mobility, upward mobility. How do we get mm-hmm. people at the lower economic spectrum 
higher? Is it public transportation? Is it light rail? Is it bus? And what they found is personal motorized transportation is the way to get people up uh, social economic ladders. And the reason why is, uh, one, buses are probably the best transportation uh, that because they're more ubiquitous than, say, a light rail. But even then, hours, restriction, service, uh, mm-hmm. people at the lower end, uh, workers, they cannot uh, determine their time, place, and manner of their employment. Sometimes they have to work a night shift, you know, like my parents or like my sister does who's in, in healthcare. And a lot of times they live further out, which exactly. means they have to travel further. Right. So you can't, yeah, exactly, to afford housing, which is a whole other issue. Right. The the issue is you personal motorized transportation is the way, and we've got to work that into the model they have. The the public transportation moving masses of people is an is actually an old model because of a lot of things. You talked about autonomous vehicles and even rideshare services. Well, rideshare services uh, have figured out that. Cars utilization is about 10%. So the car in your driveway, it's about a 10% utilization. If I'm Uber and I can drive a car 24 seven autonomous car, mm-hmm. uh, that is, that's going to change the way we live. And again, it's technology changes. You know, my, I've been doing technology, you know, helping tech companies for 25 years here. And it's, you always try to solve the last problem. Right. And that's what I think. You know, uh, Portland, great people. I mean, I've lived in nine different states. This is where I raised my family. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I love the place. I want to give it all. And the issue is we can't be solving yesterday's problems. And that's what is happening with, you know, let's let's get people. Let's make the Selwood Bridge really narrow. Let's <laughs> not increase it. So Let's build the Tillicum Crossing that doesn't have any vehicle traffic, no, exactly. no cars at all. And it, and it is, you know, if you want people to be upwardly economically mobile, it is personalized, motorized transportation. And, you know, I had kids. I can't, and I, I love to ride bikes. I love to walk. We walk a lot. And I, I actually used, I used to use the bus often until they cut service. And then I can't spend, you know, I work later hours and earlier hours. And then it wasn't an option for me. I had to, I was forced sure. back in my car because the service isn't there. And they're like, Oh, if we only fund it more, that's not, that has no. not that data. If you look at the data, that has not happened. It hasn't happened that, oh, you, you have this type. A lot of those dollars are taken up where, you know, low ridership services. You look at, you know, rail services. Those are not sure. low ridership. So you've got to do something different. You know, is it, you know, and I don't know what that is. I'm not a, a public transportation expert, but uh, I, just again, I'm a grazer of information. I'm not an expert, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, but I see what I yeah, see, and I see yeah, lots yeah. of traffic. <laughs> well, so I, I'd be curious for your thoughts. One of the one of the white papers that you had sent over uh, discussed a a decline in in empathy in empathizing right. with yep. you know, your fellow person. And you just touched on a little bit with people of varying political spectrums. And this is the thing that hits me when you talk about autonomous vehicles and Uber versus you know, light rail, buses, whatever, is the exact story that y'all just told about somebody who's instead of it taking 25 minutes to get to his job and to come back, it now takes an hour and a half mm-hmm. because you have to, you know, wait for a bus and change, you know, hub and spoke Go and whatever. Hub, yeah. And it strikes me that the the leadership of Portland, the leadership of Oregon is 
concerned with solving this grand problem of of climate change. I mean, at, right. at the end of the day, I feel like that's the reason that's where they're going with this. And it's worth sacrificing people stuck in traffic and time spent on the road, this yada, yada, whatever it is. Like they're looking to solve climate change when if we on our side tell the story of the, you know, sell the empathy of saying, hey, that's not fair to some guy making minimum wage or 12 or 15 bucks an hour that he's got to spend three times as long getting to his job and everybody else in Portland making a six-figure salary can just drive and suck it up and deal with the extra commute time. Well, this is the other thing about autonomous vehicles is they're all going to be electric. The reason is if you have a fleet of vehicles, if you are Uber or whomever, I mean, what's the biggest challenge of having an autonomous vehicle in a fleet is fueling. Mm-hmm. you know and but and also just um the amount of time it takes so the 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 downsides of electric vehicles now are the amount of time it takes to recharge and range if right. you're offering if you are have an uber fleet in say portland you're not really concerned about range because you're just driving around the city and you're not really concerned about fuel refueling time because you as soon as you run out of fuel you just come park it back in your garage and the next one goes out and it sits there for a couple of hours so electric vehicles are cheaper to run. The downsides of having an electric vehicle are non-existent when you're talking about an Uber, Uber fleet. And so we're, we're going to have these autonomous electric vehicles. So if, even if you're concerned about the environment, it is in the environment's best interest to promote autonomous vehicles and make this as easy as possible. Yeah. When I have this conversation with some of my liberal friends, they think it's awful and they think that we need to tax it so that we can, you know, push that money toward back to light rail or something. And it's kind of a straw man attack. I apologize. But, <laughs> but uh, like the, I've heard these arguments of autonomous vehicles are going to ruin the public transit system that we have going. Therefore we must tax autonomous vehicles so that people still use right. public transit. Yeah. So your, your tax is a disincentive or an incentive right. to do one thing or not do another. You know, we like retirement savings, so we'll have IRAs, which you can do that. That's an incentive to get people to save for their retirement. Uh, you can tax vehicles, and that's a disincentive for people. Or we don't like this technology, as happened in actually this city. Uh, so we're going to make it more difficult. So you can have different tax policies to to nudge behavior, but at the end of the day, if your goal is something like helping climate change you have to you can't again you can't think about yesterday and and the argument is yes we're only one tenth of one hundredth of a percent of the carbon footprint of the world but we have to lead portland has got to lead that's okay but do we have to make our own population poorer and more and have you know <laughs> less have socioeconomic yeah. mobility in order to lead by impoverishing our own people and i think you hear more and more people are saying i don't think that's a good thing can we do both can we lead not by the yeah. arguments of the 1970s and 1960s but can we lead by arguments of the 21st century and beyond I think we can. And this is another thing that I've kind of harped on a little bit is a great way to sequester carbon and store it is by logging. You grow a tree, you cut it down, you build a house out of it, you grow another tree. Yep. But what are we doing in Oregon? We have shut down all of the logging in, or not all of it, but we've shut down a significant point of the logging in this, in this state. 
And so what happens is the, the forests burn down every other year and all that carbon is released back into the atmosphere. And instead of using our locally renewable resource of trees, we just ship it in for British Columbia. So now not only are we still using that, <laughs> that lumber, yeah. we're now, we're now using the trucks to pay it, you know, that are driving down from Canada right. to drop it off. It's, it's totally nonsensical from an environmental standpoint. And, and I, have, I have a story to tell you. It's, it's a true story. Uh, and I do a lot of uh, volunteer work with like startups and entrepreneurs and, you know, hopefully they'll uh, eventually do something useful and contribute. Uh, but at the early stage, they have ideas, right? Just kind of brainstorm. And mm-hmm. I had one entrepreneur uh, at a, a speech I gave, he said, hey, I have this new device. I want to patent it. It's to sequester carbon and it'll sit right on your desk. (laughs) And I said, what is the carbon footprint of that device that will somehow sequester CO2 is what it was. Um, And he was dumbfounded. I said, you know what the best machine to sequester carbon is? It's a tree. (laughs) You know, Uh, me personally, I I personally plant, uh, I've planted four trees this year and every year I try to plant trees or help someone plant trees. We've stolen um, your pears. Yeah. There you go. Uh, <laughs> you're doing your part for the earth and so, for me and my wife. Yeah. But the best, <laughs> the best, uh, carbon sequestration machine is a tree. And, you know, two years ago when the sun was orange midday because of all the smoke here in town, uh, we've got to think about, well, what's the, the better way to use those resources because humans are messy, humans need resources, humans are imperfect, mm-hmm. but how do we live without watching, you know, the gorge burn with mm-hmm. uh, some of these areas? You look at what's happening in Australia now. There are smart ways to do it and we can figure it out. But I think that we're with the, I want to do something that I can understand. I can put a device on my table and feel good about the environment when that's not going to sequester that much carbon. And I don't know who's going to buy the device, but planting a tree is a better device to sequester carbon. Well, I think it's great to get the logging companies involved because they have a vested interest in not letting the forest burn down because that's their, that's their revenue. Absolutely. And, and they've done tons of research to figure out the best way to grow trees without them having, (laughs) without burning them down. And it's just anyway. Well, so I, I'd be curious for your thoughts on this. I feel like we got a little sidetracked. We're talking about yeah. trees and autonomous vehicles. When well, we start with vaccines. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. If you were never tracked in the first place, you can't really get sidetracked. But if, if we've got a, a subject matter expert in communication and negotiation, yeah. it, you know, we can sit here and I, you know, James and I have had these conversations all the time on mic and off mic about this seems like there is a, a very logical solution to what Portland writ large has identified as a very emotional problem. I, climate change, forests burning it, what have you. What is the, either for James as a candidate who's, you know, in the middle of running for office or for the party as a whole at a, at a policy level, at a candidate level, at a donor level, volunteer level, whatever. What are some of the ways that we can talk about our issues and our ideas right. for solutions to these problems? I mean, this sounds weird to say it, but like, not by talking about them logically. Like, how can we best empathize with who Oregonians are, you know, as, as a blue state, Portland is a blue city. How can you make an emotional argument for autonomous vehicles, for better logging practices? Well, can I can't argue? For vaccines. The, the one thing, it's it's emotional intelligence 101. <laughs> and James, I've seen you actually do this um, the other day 
uh, I saw you at that, uh, that uh, bar and grill. Oh, yeah. And you talk to people about politics, and the first thing you do is meet them where they are. You don't try to launch into some, you're wrong, or this doesn't make sense. It's like, oh, you believe that whatever issue is this, you know, you don't say, oh, that's extreme. Uh, and then you say, well, explain me more about that. And, uh, well, I have another story. So I was at the, uh, in, uh, Roseburg at an event and, uh, I think it was uh, the Ford Family Foundation. It was community organizers. And one of the individuals, uh, stood up and used a lot of, uh, very extreme words to describe what she is. Well, I help remedy the colonialist, uh, uh, patriarchy oh, and something culture. <laughs> this is an activist, right? And then I, I engaged. I said, well, what, what's your, when you say those things, you're an activist. What's your goal? I, to make people stand up and take a look and to make them change their minds. And I said, well, that's not going to work because you're definitely raising consciousness and academically you, you may be correct. You know, you're absolutely correct. You know, this was a colonial country. There were lots of human rights abuses. Uh, there's all these things. But if you're trying to convince people now, what impacts them now emotionally? And the emotional thing, she said, let me think about that. And she got into, well, I think that there are disparities in how resources are allocated in different neighborhoods, depending on where they are. And I said, well, that's a much more persuasive thing than hmm. these labels on, this is funny, my, uh, my, uh, son's, uh, girlfriend's family, uh, <laughs> self-described themselves as libtards, which is not a word <laughs> I've ever heard before, but they're very extreme and they're, you uh -huh. know, they're self-aware, but they're awesome people. And the whole thing is these electrifying titles, like if, if someone on uh, the Republican side were to use that word, you know, you're not going to convince anyone. You're not going to convince your, your own people who are moderate, who, you know, I think at the, when people's, uh, blood boil goes down they will probably take a moderate position on both sides and the issue is how do you get there the first thing is accept people where they are from understand ask questions have them have their say and you will find out that a lot of the logic a lot of the reason may be based in something that may be academically accurate but it's not currently accurate or there's something different currently that's not making that position necessarily relevant to someone's everyday thing like for me you know i love biking but when i had kids you know i had to have a minivan i mean you can't do pick up and drop off on a bike with a bunch of kids who have to go to baseball games and school and plays i think, and I think xander would uh <laughs> might disagree with you uh, does regular, he have regular a regular guest everywhere bike? on a he, he has a he has a scooter yeah and um, he, he works out at edgefield too so he drives like 20 miles towards troutdale every on a day scooter on his scooter that is impressive like, that's <laughs> super impressive yeah. just proving all of us wrong about yeah. our car yeah. conversations yeah. Yeah. Right, well, right right fair enough <laughs> that's interesting i think i think that's good meet people where they are i as part of my campaign statement was talking about reaching out to the LGBTQ community and reaching out to immigrants and women and these, these sort of groups that the Republican party, according to the media, doesn't, doesn't like, or doesn't get along right. with. And I got accused of pandering by a Republican and yeah. I, I thought, no, it's, it's not pandering. It's, it's meeting with them where they are. Like the, these communities do not vote Republican because they see Republicans as being, against them 
you know, for, for, for right or for wrong. That's how, that's how a lot of them see us. And we have, we as Republicans, I think need to take that extra step and reach out to those communities specifically because of the perception that we are against those groups, even though I feel that we're not, I feel like we're a big tent party and we can have everybody involved, but you know, perception is what it is and perception is reality a lot of the time. So I, I think you're right. So what is, what does anyone in the LG TV community want? What do people want economically? They want agency, right? They mm-hmm. want a certain amount of freedom. They want a certain amount of non-interference. So people in a lot of diverse communities are like rock star business people because they have agency. That's a typically Republicans are associated with business, um, but there's a whole group that people think big business, they think billionaires, they think all these other things. But in reality, small businesses in this state really need a, a leg up. And that's a very diverse community. And mm. I was chairman of the Small Business Advisory Council. And these people, they employ the people. You know, it's not, yes, we have big anchor tenants, you know, Intel and Nike, we're tens of thousands of people, but there's more than a few tens of thousands of people in the state. Most mm-hmm. of those are small and medium sized businesses mm-hmm. and middle market companies. And these people have a lot of different views, but at the end of the day, they know about taxes, they know about regulation and they want to earn a living. That's- and. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we had Alexander Flores come and sit mm-hmm. on the podcast. And that's, and that was one of the questions I put to him is, are you a Republican who happens to be Hispanic or are you a Hispanic who happens to be a Republican? And he said, I'm a Republican who happens to be Hispanic. He said, I, you know, work, I've owned businesses. I've managed projects. I've, I do a lot of different things and I know what it feels like to be overregulated and overtaxed and overburdened. And he says, I, I want to use my politics to be able to to change some of those things and to make it easier and more efficient and more economical for people to be business people here in the state of Oregon. And he says, that's, that leads me to being in the Republican party. And he said, yeah, that's, we obviously don't, we got a real bad rap in the Hispanic mm-hmm. community because we have a commander in chief who rightly or wrongly is perceived as not being a friend of the Hispanic people. And we don't do any part to reach out, to try to, learn Spanish. I mean, mm-hmm. anything, any steps that we could take to, to try to improve our standing in myriad minority communities and we're paying the price for it. Yeah. I, I think you're right. So I think, you know, political identity is, you know, it's, it's false. It's like, Oh, I'm of this group and therefore I have to associate with these values. And that's, that's not my experience. It's not the experience of people I, I deal with. I think what makes sense is what do you want? And I think one of the common unifying elements in Oregon politics with both parties is we want good government. Hmm. We don't, we want people to follow the rules. We want people that's fair. We don't want people to appoint, you know, say a judge out of process. You want to do, follow the right process to, to make that appointment or you want these funds allocated in a transparent way. And I think both parties want that. I'm not sure when you look at how money is spent and there's some big public expenditures that really didn't work out. I think people, it's okay to say that is a mistake, but you don't lead with that. You want people to say, look, we have to make sure that when we do spend money, taxpayer dollars, it's efficient. It gets the result that this 
is after. And you don't see that. I mean, you don't see that accountability right now. Not in Oregon, no. Well, we are just about out of time. So, Martin, one of the things we like to do at the end of our podcast is ask our guest, who is your favorite Republican, living or dead? Oh, hands down. Uh, that's got to be Abraham Lincoln. Nice. He's, OG. Uh, yeah, he's, you know, <laughs> he's all about uh, agency. He, he understood that the Constitution had ideals in it that weren't being enacted, hmm. and he worked hard to enact those ideals. And I think as time goes on in the United States, I think the Constitution does go be- get better and better because we look at the ideals of the founders when they couldn't manifest those ideals, but they were smart enough to figure out some wiggle room. And I, I think Abraham Lincoln paid the ultimate price in giving an ideal actual application. So that's why he's my favorite. Absolutely. Solid choice. Totally agree. Well, Martin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed having you. This I know this kind of was I think I'm gonna name this this uh podcast Potent Potables. <laughs> Nick Nick is the Jeopardy guy. Um <laughs> uh but yeah, this this has been a fantastic conversation. Really appreciate you coming on. All right. Well thanks for so, having me out, James. Do you wanna oh, do you wanna put pitch your, your book or something? Oh, sure. I uh love to speak on Influence persuasion and negotiation. I have a podcast. It's called the Persuasion Lab. You can get it on, you know, Apple or wherever else. Uh, I think uh, you you find your your podcasts. And uh, my name is Martin Medeiros, and I publish books. Uh, my book, it's interesting, is uh, 161 Negotiation Tactics. I talk about kind of five groupings of tactics, tactics, and we pull people on uh, what the most effective tactics are when you're trying to persuade. And it's in that book. So. You couldn't negotiate to get up to like 165 or around. <laughs> you know, I think it's 161 ish after the editor came back with it. So it's, uh, it's a relative. No, there's no warranty, but uh, <laughs> if I come up short, just give me a call and I'll give you one. <laughs> awesome. Well, Martin, challenge accepted. <laughs> thanks again, Martin and uh, listeners. We will see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to the rational Republican. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting service, or you can listen on our website, jamesaball.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, and if you're feeling extra generous, you can visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash rationalrepublican. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.